I was having coffee with an old colleague, Laura Patterson, right here in beautiful Austin. Laura advises businesses on all aspects of their marketing. Here at Conversion Sciences, we focus on only one piece of the puzzle, that digital channel. So I have a lot of respect for her ability to bring together all of the pieces that make up a modern marketing effort. Advertising, brick and mortar retail, online retail, branding, merchandising, messaging. When I talk to her, I get a new appreciation just how much CMOs have on their plates. If anybody's going to know what's going on with CMOs, it's Laura. And then she said something about CMOs that stopped me in my tracks. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to get the results their business needs. It delivers intended consequences, and I'll teach you how to harness it. Why are we seeing the emergence of some of these really interesting titles, like Chief Customer Officer, like Chief Growth Officer? Because we are seeing those titles beginning to emerge, and it concerns me that many times when you read the job descriptions, these are job descriptions that reflected uh, the kinds of things that marketing leaders used to perform. Just when I was marveling at how much CMOs really must do for their brands, my friend Laura Patterson said something that blew me away. Laura is the founder of Vision Edge Marketing. Like me, Laura's been focused on performance marketing and the proper use of data since before it was cool. So I was left speechless when she said, CMOs are abdicating their strategic position in their businesses. Now, Laura is not the kind of person to jump to conclusions, so I had to take notice. A few weeks later, I was on a panel with friend and fellow marketer Janet Driscoll-Miller. She reminded the audience and me of a Fournay's marketing group study of 1,200 CEOs, and it found that 80% of them did not trust and were not impressed by the work done by marketers. By comparison, the same group, 90% of them trusted their CIOs and CFOs. There's a link to these in the show notes. I did some additional research and found more incriminating news. Forrester recently reported that dozens of major brands had eliminated the CMO position altogether. Brands like Johnson & Johnson, Kellogg's, Taco Bell, and Netflix. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. Was I part of the problem focusing on just one channel? I invited Laura to join me here in the offices of Conversion Sciences and tell us what she knows. So why does Laura believe CMOs are losing their seat at the table in the C-suite? Let's listen. I'm always interested in what brings people to the place they are. Marketing is a, a mix of creative right brain and more structured left brain work. And so I'm always curious about um, what brings people to this place. You can go back as far as you want, high school, college. <laughs> okay. Tell us what brought you to this place as okay. the founder of Vision Age Marketing. So I like to think of myself as a whole brain person, but if I'm really honest, my roots in marketing are on the left brain, more on the science side of marketing. So I'll tell a story about my really, my first true marketing job, not my first job. I had several jobs, but my first true marketing job was in financial services. I started my career working for someone who was a finance guy. I think it's important to know that in my career, I've really only worked with two kinds of people, 
engineers or finance people or accountants. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, probably colored my view and made me a stronger on the science side. Maybe didn't force me to flex my creative side as much. But uh, when I went to work for Dwight, my job, my title, this is way back in the 70s, so was Customer Relationship Manager. Uh, interesting title, given mm-hmm. what we have today in CRM systems. And what he hired me for was to be uh, responsible for keeping and growing the value of existing customers. So my job really wasn't about acquisition as much as it was about uh, retention and share of wallet. And one of my very first assignments that uh, sort of helped me re- realize that I actually do like the science side of marketing is he walked me into the office and he, back in those days, Brian, you can probably remember, we didn't have all these fancy computers on our on our desks with all kinds of information. I had a computer, but it went to a mainframe that didn't do anything. But there were everything about every customer was in a manila folder. And there were just rows and rows of manila folders. And like the doctor's office. Like a doctor's office. And his comment to me was, uh, we don't really have any way that we look at our customer set. We probably ought to have a segmentation model of some kind so that we can figure out what might be the best offers in order to do retention and expansion. Okay. He says, so come up with one. And he turned me loose. And, you know, I went through the first, you know, a couple dozen of folders and I started trying to, on a legal size piece of paper, figure out how we might create a segmentation model. And then I got, you know, to the next batch and realized I needed to add some more data fields into the model, so forth and so on, and eventually created a segmentation model. And I actually thought that was really cool. A segmentation model from Manila folders. A segmentation model from Manila folders. The and rest you know of us what? have no excuse <laughs> not to be doing this work. <laughs> it was, it, I, I will admit, it took longer than I thought it would. But when we finally did do that, it would. Uh, there were some very cool things we looked at. For example, were they baseball fans or football fans? Did they like the theater or did they, you know, like uh, camping? Kinds of interesting beginning of persona work or lifestyle work and financial services, that was cool, right? Were there indications early on that you were going to be more of uh, this analytical thing or that you would fall in love with the analytical side of things earlier in life? I'm just curious. I think um, because I love to ask the question why. I think I probably drove my father crazy with <laughs> why. So why why is that? Why do we have that many colors in a rainbow? I would ask my father or you know things like that. I love to understand the why. And why, I think, is where you start with almost anything is, well, why? Why do they do that? Or why didn't they do that? Very recently, uh, who is looking at some data and they offer a trial. And this is not uncommon. As in, in many of us know companies that offer trials, whether that's a trial like Hootsuite or a trial with a uh, you know, an SEO program or whatever they're sure. out there, mm-hmm. all kinds mm-hmm. of trials. Yep. And what they're seeing is a lower conversion rate from trial to purchase. I'm really trying to understand why. That's the quill question. Well, why is that? Their first inclination was we need to change the price. But maybe that's not the answer. I think we need to know the why. So mm-hmm. in answer to your question, uh, I think what drove me to the analytical side is really trying to understand the why. Yeah, and I think that we can tend to uh, bang it out of our – you can only hear why so many times on a trip <laughs> before you're like, please just be quiet. And now we're at a position where companies like me come in and suddenly we're like, all right, everybody should be asking why. And people scratching their heads going, um, it's just a good design. Can't we just go with that? And uh, no, 
Now we have so much data and so many ways of answering the question why, following our curiosity, that I guess we're having to take everybody back to their childhood and, and get past that stern, stop asking questions. Well, I was really fortunate. I did never hear that from my father. Um, but what I do think uh, happens and can happen if we're not careful is we can ask why, to your point, so long and so frequently that we never use the answer to do anything. We end up in sort of analysis paralysis. And that can happen to those of us on mm -hmm. the highly analytic side. So that's finding that balance, right, every day of answer, asking the question why, getting that information, translating that into something that's relevant and meaningful, and then taking action. So it's that whole process that I actually find rewarding. And then putting that into action as an experiment, seeing how it goes. And then, and I imagine in your business, you do a lot of experiments. We love our experiments. Right. We do too. We love doing experiments and then seeing if it works or not. I mean, it, that's the whole point of doing anything. You know, even research is a form of, of an, you know, the scientific method, right? Exactly. Yeah. Here we are. All the things we did learn back then, then about the scientific method, and here we are applying them in our everyday work. And we preach on that. This, you know, an A, you don't have to do an A-B test to do an experiment. It's, right. there's so many other ways. You can pull some analytics data. You can pull some manila folders together. Those all qualify as experiments because you're going in and saying, what am I going to find? Um, but this really does start to point at uh, one of the reasons I invited you on this. You know, we were having coffee and you said something very tantalizing. And it was, so you deal with uh, strategic marketing issues. You're in the, using the data to start answering the questions why and start coming up with strategies that move a business forward from a marketing standpoint. And you had said, CMOs are abdicating their strategic role and they're all in on, in all honesty, what we focus on, digital campaigns, delivering leads and delivering sales. And um, that really struck me. What is it that leads you to believe that CMOs are abdicating that strategic part of it, that, that higher level? Earlier this year, Spencer Stewart did uh, a piece of research around the CMO shuffle and why they think that is. And Spencer Stewart, the recruiting firm. Yes. And they do annual CMO surveys. And in their study, they talked a little bit about one of the reasons being that CMOs need to be more focused on understanding the business and aligning themselves around the business, right? So being much mm -hmm. more of a business partner, strategic partner. And that got echoed in a recent piece that was done by Newastar, a marketing company. I think they're in the UK. And they did a thing, a piece of research talking about maybe you're not measuring the right things. It really has something to do maybe with getting a better alignment with the business. So there is a kind of a trend. If you're looking at data, something around alignment around the business. And then if you look at the study that was done by Gardner quite recently for the their uh, annual CMO study, which I think is the 2019-2020 study, they said the priorities of CMOs uh, going forward, the top three priorities are market customer competitive intelligence, sounds like data, mm -hmm. marketing analytics, translating that into something that you can make actionable, and then operational excellence. So instead of the budget going to let's buy more tools, it was let's get our skills more refined around this data so we can make better hopefully, strategic decisions. And then if you look at 
I think, uh, I can't remember which one is which. Accenture has their new study out and PwC has their new study out. One is the 22nd annual CEO study. I think that's PwC mm-hmm. looking at what CEOs are thinking about in the coming year and what do they see as the challenges. And one of their biggest gaps is around customer data mm-hmm. and interesting correlation. And so if you look at what's going on, it looks like maybe and their expectation is that marketing should be doing a better job in this area. So we are being told as marketers we need to be better at data, but maybe we've taken our data too far down into the view, right? The view is and uh, the aperture is around the funnel as opposed to a bigger view, which is what markets should we be in or how do we grow in the market that we're in? What products should we be our services should we be bringing to market that will allow us to be more competitive and find, keep, and grow our customers? Questions that are bigger that data should be answering, mm-hmm. right? Kind of back to Dwight's question, I need a segmentation model, but why? It was because I want to retain these customers and I want to grow the services I'm doing with these customers. So then the question became, okay, which services go with which set of customers? That was the whole point. Right, right. So uh, you touched on a couple of things. In your experience, where does product live in relation to the CMO? Because what I'm hearing you say is that when we come up above the the funnel and the perhaps the branding approach, which is almost always a, a CMO job, you're talking about which markets should we be in, which starts to point to what sorts of features should we have in our products to address those those markets. Is product usually under the CMO or is that under someone else? How does that Well, you know, I love one of Seth Godin's quotes, and I'm probably going to butcher it now that I'm being recorded, but it goes something like this. Find products for your customers, not customers for your products. Mm-hmm. And so it starts with customers. Well, marketing is the only function right now that has the word market in it, right? We have customer success evolving. We have customer service, which has been around a long time. But in terms of really understanding the market and being able to tap into the market and know where the market is going and keeping a pulse on the market and a market and on the competition in some kind of orchestrated fashion, that's marketing, right? That's why Peter Drucker, quote, there's only two things that matter when it comes to creating a customer, marketing and innovation. Innovation being the product side, marketing being how do you motivate and and get the right message to the right people. Right, right. right? Those kinds of questions. What you're saying is that that data is not being fed back so that the product people can design better products or better bundles or whatever the issue is. Yeah, marketing should be bringing that back, right? So if it's product marketing as opposed to product management and you're the CMO, ideally product marketing would be one of the functions in addition to brand marketing or marketing communications or field marketing or however you've organized your team, right, that you would have is underneath your function. Which brings the question, why are we seeing the emergence of some of these really interesting titles like chief customer officer, like chief growth officer? Because we are seeing those titles beginning to emerge. And it concerns me that many times when you read the job descriptions, these are job descriptions that reflected uh, the kinds of things that marketing leaders used to perform. Chief growth officer, chief chief revenue officer, chief customer officer. Sounds a little bit redundant because those, at one point, were the job of the CMO. I, I also find this interesting because we've really just left a 10-ish year period in which 
all of the big companies have put business intelligence, data warehouses in place. Our experience is that the, uh, the teams, the web and digital teams that we work with actually don't have access to those business and intelligence tools, or it's siloed away. So it's very difficult for us to get real time feedback into what we're doing. Has that taking that data to a CIO? who's typically responsible for putting those things together. Has that taken some of this customer-oriented responsibility away from the CMO in your experience? That's an interesting question, Brian. So I'm going to go back and think about my career for a moment, and then I'm going to answer the question. I'm going to kind of give context. So early in my career, when I first came to Austin, I came to Austin to work for Motorola. That's what brought me here. I was working in a software company that had an, a new product application that ran on a Wang 2200, just to give context, okay, to people out there so they can understand that era. The reason I was hired by Motorola was they had a startup. They wanted someone with startup technology experience that did marketing and had marketing and sales background. And so there weren't a lot of, you know, when you're thinking about the late 70s, early 80s, there really weren't a lot of us, right, that were willing to move to Austin. Of course, everyone will raise their hand to come to Austin today, but you got to remember in 1982, what Austin was like was a very different town. It was a, a music, hippie, hangout sort of a Barbecue place. joint. Barbecue joint, <laughs> yeah. Um, Dance with, hall. With these weird technology people kind of parachuting in. Parachuting in. We had IBM here, which now is the domain. IBM, <laughs> TI, Motorola. Um, yeah, 3M's big campus wasn't here yet. Uh, Motorola's Oak Hill uh, and uh, Palmer campuses did not exist. It was the Armadillo World Headquarters That's and 6th right. Street. And yeah, fun times, right? Mm -hmm. But where I was going with that is on my back to on my desk hat was this box that bleaked green at me, right? I mean, it was a mainframe. It was access to a computer. But I had nothing on like the power of the machines that we have available today. And the, youngers, uh, the younger folks in our audience might be very amused that there was a computer, a great computer named the Wang. <laughs> or by Wayne Corporation. Well, and the, the computer on my desk was actually an IBM mainframe desk. Oh, it was. Maybe a Cray on, at Motorola. So the Wayne, the Wayne was a different company. That was a startup company that I was working for. But when I came to Austin and went to work for Motorola, there was this blinking machine that blinked green. And it, you'd had to put a query in. You had to know how to frame your query. Mm -hmm. And then the data that you were asking for would come back in a, this green bar report from the MIS organization, you know, sometime in the next day to two to three days. And if you asked the question wrong, then what you got was what you got, mm -hmm. what you got, you know, might have to start over. So the people who are belly aching about data, I have really very little empathy because there's more <laughs> and more data today than ever. And I had to go ask for my data, right? I wasn't at my fingertips sitting on a machine. And if, what I learned is who has the data? Because I needed to have data to make decisions about things that we were going to, you know, again, how should we segment? What kind of offers are best? How do we understand the buying journey and the decision-making process? The same questions people are asking today, we were asking. Today, we have account-based marketing. Back then, we had strategic account marketing, right? Everything old is new again. Back then, we had pipeline engineering. Today, we have customer journey mapping, Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you can remember those kinds of phrases, but those that's kind of what the world was like. But we were doing many of the same things. Right. And we needed data to do them just then like we do today. Well, what was it? I'm curious what let me interrupt, because what was it that kept you from being afraid to go into the room with the big the green blinking machine and ask it for data or ask the MIS department for data? Was there was there something that gave you confidence in that or 
is this something that we're all kind of wired with? I guess I never thought I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> Nobody told you not to. <laughs> Nobody told me not to. And I have to admit, we were in a scrappy, we were a, a you know, 40-person organization inside of, a, a, at that time, Motorola only had 2,500 people here in Austin. Most of those were in a fab, right? We were pretty early, and as we got much bigger, by the time I left Motorola, we were 12,500 people, so five times growth. So the the company, when I first started, was a much smaller. By the time I left, it was a $27 billion company with 100,000 people globally. So big changes. And of course, processes did change along the way. And so did the machines on our desk. Mm -hmm. But we were encouraged. It was an engineering company. There was no problem with people wanting data. You know, that old saying, in God we trust, all others bring data is certainly true. When we were in an engineering company, you had to bring data to the conversation. Nobody was just going to take your word for it. So it wasn't like asking for data was, you know, get you sanctioned. And so this may be one of the challenges for CMOs. Like, Engineering companies come with a culture of experiment, use data, park your biases as best you can. The marketing department for an apparel company doesn't come from a tradition of engineering. And so these skills have to be learned or this culture has to be changed. And maybe this is one of those areas where the CMOs find themselves at a disadvantage. So you work with a, a lot of CMOs and I'm curious, do they see the writing on the wall? Do they Are they saying the same things like, I don't have the seat uh, at the table in the C-suite that I used to have? So our, you know, with full disclosure, the majority of our customers are B2B. And people often ask me, what is the difference between B2B and B2C, right? They think they know. So when I'm teaching like at a class, a young in a college and we're teaching marketing and we get into a conversation about B2B and B2C and I like to use a little different explanation than what be traditional. Hit us uh, with it. Okay. So companies that have, have a long sales cycle that's a consultative sell, that have a variety of people in the decision-making process, that's a B2B kind of process. Walking through the checkout lane and trying to make a decision about whether I should get a candy bar and whether if I am going to get a candy bar, it's a Snickers or a Butterfinger. That's a B2C sell. Buyer's remorse on the candy bar might be there the next day and I have to do an extra run, but I'm not going to get fired for that, right? Probably not. I might get a little bit of pushback at home, like, why didn't you bring me one too? But other than that, not a big deal. But we do have B2B buying processes that occur in the consumer world, like buying a house. That probably is a multi-person decision. Long sales cycle. Probably has some long sales. Very few people will just walk down the neighborhood and say, I want that house, although I know that happens, right? But even then, if it's not for sale, that might create a different problem than if it is for sale, right? And probably is a consultative sell. You probably have a variety of people that are part of the consultative sell. Is like, what does the inspection say? All kinds of gates that have to be passed. Mm -hmm. Mom um, and dad giving their opinion. If you're young or whatever. And then other things like major medical procedures, like if you have a major medical procedure or a major medical illness, odds are you're in a B2B process. You're not in, it's not the same as like, I need to give you a filling for your tooth. But on the other hand, hey, you got a serious problem. I'm looking at you and it looks like you've got throat cancer. Here's what we need to do. So you think the monikers are the problem. When I say B2B, I assume I'm selling to a business and therefore buying a house since I'm not I'm not making a, a decision from a business doesn't qualify. You 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 prefer a highly considered purchase versus a not highly considered yeah, purchase. Yeah, so think about the wedding dress. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
um, probably a little bit more like the B2B journey than it is like the B2C journey. Not that as someone who's saying, I'm getting married tomorrow, I got to have a dress. Not that that couldn't happen. But in the normal buying journey, buying that wedding dress usually takes a while, is a consultative sell, and there's uh, several people involved in the buying decision, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that it's as complicated as making a decision about what platform you're going to run your company's you know, enterprise system on. But you can see that it's not the same as walking into an apparel store and buying a pair of socks. And online, I'm going to take a different approach with a wedding, a wedding dress site versus a Gap Kids or something like that, where purchase is not as considered long sales cycle, then there aren't as many people involved. On the other hand, B2C has a tremendous amount of data. So we're back kicking you back to data. When you check out of the grocery store, the amount of data they're collecting on what was in your basket, you know, and how many of each item and- Thousands of data points. Oh, huge amount of data that they're collecting. And if you have a rewards card, they know who you are and how frequently you shopped, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Lots of information compare or compared to what you might have in a B2B world. So in some ways, the B2C folks have more data and are have more access to that data than the B2B folks. So I know we got off the track, but- that has implications because that's why in the world of B2C, you have these brand managers and product line managers that are running their marketing as opposed to in the B2B world where it's really the CMO really should be much more engaged in that process, in my opinion. So other than changing their title, what sorts of strategies can CMOs engage to get back into that more strategic uh, framework? What, what do they need to change? I would say that the number one thing that any CMO can do right now that would signal that they are taking a more strategic stance and want to be more of a strategic partner is how they frame the marketing plan. And the reason I say that, so I'm giving very practical advice, whether it's us or anyone else that use for marketing planning. And the reason I say that is many people are being asked right now to give a budget. They don't even have a plan yet, but they're talking about money. End of year budget planning. End of year year. budget planning for a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people. And when they do that, what they're going to do is they're going to open up whatever document they lose last year for their planning and their budget. They're going to make some decisions about off the cuff, what they're going to do next year in terms of events or campaigns. Maybe they'll look at some data. They're going to put a number on it. They're going to read maybe Gartner's like, what's the allocation of budget going to be? They're going to do some finagling and they're going to submit a budget. That's not a plan. It's a budget. It's a budget. But you've come up with a budget before you've actually got a plan. And many of these marketing people may or may not even know yet what the three to five things are the company has to do next year in order to win. They may have some general idea they want to grow, but we don't market to buckets of revenue and we can't just say grow. We need to be very clear. Our success depends on making the following bets and our flag must fly here. Our flag must fly in this market or in this market or in this location, whatever that looks like. For us to win next year, this is what we have to be. These are the beachheads we have got to conquer in the next 12 months. Love that metaphor, right? Because my first question to any CMO is, what are the beachheads? What are the beach? That's a great question. And if I don't know that and they don't know that, how can we put a plan together? And that's a great question at any stage. If you're in an early adopter market, those beachheads are really important. Picking where you're going to own those those beachheads in the main, in the main market, 
but even a maturing product has got to figure out, all right, where am I going to stick my flag and what hill am I going to die on Yes. Um, if a competitor beats me or um, if I uh, misread the market? And if you're a maturing company, it's what hills can I not afford to lose? Yes. Right? I cannot give this this hill up because that would be a problem, right? So in a bigger company, it's not just what's the offense, but it's also what do we have to maintain, retain, right? That was back to my early job. I wasn't about getting customers. He didn't have a problem getting customers. He wanted to make sure he kept and grew the ones he had, which was pretty substantial number of companies. Yes, yes. And, I, you know, I, that really is a big theme right now on the digital marketing side. Now, again, I think we're getting back into the weeds, but okay. understanding that the clients you have are the market segment that you need to dominate first is uh, sometimes lost at a strategic level because we are so focused on acquisition in the digital market. Okay. Facebook ads that drive to landing pages that get a lead that we can then email to and get them to buy. Yes. So that's back to that aperture. Down in that level of the funnel, there's nothing wrong with that. It's very actional and also transactional. But on the other hand, I really want, you know, and, and of course, if you're doing all the things that you're talking about, you're thinking about the who. And as a result, you're thinking about the message. I mean, you're going through that process. But that's a very different level than of thinking through what is the beachheads? What's the overall strategy for that? So is my strategy, for example, I want to go into an adjacent market? What does that look like? What do I have to do? If I go into an adjacent market, do I, how do I do that with existing customers? Or what's a different strategy? Or how do I expand in the market I'm in? You know, different kinds of questions that a CMO that wants to be a strategic partner is coming to the table and says, I understand these are the five things that we need to do next year. Here's how we think we can help. Is that in line with what you were thinking we should be doing? Yeah. And for, for those listening that want to be a CMO at some point in their career, what is it that CMOs aren't getting that they're getting to the CMO position, but they're not saying, all right, now I'm going to use my data to make these very important decisions. What's happening in that, in that journey that uh, we need to watch for? So that's a great question. So I was in a um, working session with a pretty large global company quite recently uh, with the marketing organization for a multi-billion dollar uh, line of business. So we're not talking about a small company. Mm -hmm. And Getting the marketing folks to think strategically as opposed to thinking about the things, the stuff, right? And when you say marketing folks, you mean? The whole marketing team was in the this The whole room. team. The entire team. The first thing they gravitate to is we'll run an email campaign, we'll run some digital ads, we'll do this social media thing, and we'll go to this event or series of events. And we haven't even really talked about, like, what is it that marketing is expected to deliver? Ultimately, is it to deliver some number of conversations? Is it to deliver some number of uh, category ownership? Is it some level of growth over the competition? I don't know about everybody else, but I'm more motivated by a CMO coming in and saying, we're going to own this market. I need you guys to figure that out as opposed to coming in and saying, we need more leads for sales. We need to double the number of leads that we're getting so that we can grow next year. Those are two very different ways of motivating and sounds like take a very different kind of CMO to uh, approach. And different kind of data, right? So a colleague of mine who um, has done a lot of work in the demand gen, has served in the demand gen role through her career a lot, said, I can, I can change the number of leads anytime just by changing the criteria, right? Yeah, yeah. I can change that. That's not what is expected. 
if I'm going to do my job right, it's really how do I increase the win rate, right? So her thinking is it's not leads, it's win rate, even in the demand gen world. That changes the way you think. How do I change the win rate is a very different question than mm-hmm. how do I make more leads? Well, because you have to be responsible for more than just this little digital fiefdom. That starts to involve sales and product design, product delivery, all of those things, especially if the segment you're interested in is those existing customers. Yes. And it also depends on how competitive and where you are in your stage of growth, right? When you're a company that's been growing double digit and you've, you know, you've gone from you grew 25% last year and then this year you grew another 25% and then, you know, whatever. Maybe 25% is not realistic because now you've gotten enough of the share there maybe isn't as much left. So really looking at the data again and what is real, realistic. Maybe you've gotten all the easy opportunities and the win rate's been really high. What's left may be much harder or maybe we decide, you know what, we're going to stop going after that because we've gotten the category ownership that we want. We're going to shift over here because we want to get traction in this market and leave the really hard ones either for later or whatever. See, that's a strategic decision. Yeah. And and so what I'm hearing, and I love this. So if you're listening to this podcast, we talk uh, almost exclusively about applying data to these particular marketing problems that uh, are curious for me and affect our clients. If I'm going to prep myself to fill this vacuum, the CMO vacuum, the experiments I'm doing day to day on my campaigns is going to equip me with the ability to then take these statistical knowledge, the things I know how to do with data to a more strategic level. And that's going to better qualify me as long as they haven't gone out and hired a uh, chief growth officer or something like that. Our team looks like a growth team. Oftentimes we'll be working besides a growth team, but it's configured very much the same and we're using the same tools to do those experiments. So I can see how a CMO might be getting crowded in by something that people see as different, but the CMO shouldn't see as different if I was to summarize that. Are there signs before they hire that CGO uh, next to me? Are there signs as a CMO that I should be on the lookout for or as an employee of a CMO that is losing that strategic capability or that strategic voice in the C-suite, what are some of the symptoms that I should look for? I love the fact that you're asking what are some signs, signs that you're doing it right or signs that you're maybe in trouble, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So signs that you're in trouble, they start just relegating you to running programs. Okay. I I need another program. You know, 1-800-MARKETING, I need you to make a new campaign. 1-800-MARKETING, we have this event, I need you to go spin up. 1-800-MARKETING, can you get me, you know, some more literature content around X, right? Whatever that is, 1-800-MARKETING. You were telling me the story about a CMO that just got a new CEO. Yes, 1-800-MARKETING all of a sudden was, I mean, she was facing and concerned that this new CEO saw marketing as the brochure maker, mm-hmm. right? Essentially in her mind. And she had been in a pretty strategic role. And so scrambling to be able to articulate the value proposition for marketing being in a more strategic role as opposed to marketing being in this tactical uh, sales support role, right? And and, and she was able to do that, uh, fortunately, because I think she'd have been very unhappy if she had moved, been moved into that other role. Uh, random acts of marketing. If you're, if you're doing random acts, acts of marketing, you're probably going to see some red flags around that, right? Random acts of marketing. I love that. Yes. And uh, we have a, a case study on our website by Mott 
a great company, uh, B2B company, not the applesauce company, the company that's in the filtration, metal filtration space, very B2B, love what they do. And, you know, they had been doing random acts of marketing and wanted to uh, change the way that they, they uh, did marketing and to be more strategic. And so we have a case study about that. And I think that their journey is very uh, similar to what other companies can do to make their marketing more strategic. So that's those are red flags. When you start getting pushback about your data and you start getting pushback about what you're measuring, like you come in and you say, we did X number of campaigns last year and we got an ROI of Y and you start getting pushback. Or we did X, this coming year, we did X number of events and we brought back X number of new leads. And you start getting pushback to that. Why would you get pushback on that? Because most of the time, the C-suite is going to start asking, that's interesting. What did you do to move the needle for my business? I see. Right. So the real question becomes, what are you doing to move the needle for my business? Because remember what the CEOs are trying to do, back to that 22nd annual CEO study, is grow. How do I grow? How do I grow organically? Where do I go to grow? Who? What do I need to bring to the market to grow? And so if you're telling me I produce X number of new leads from these trade shows, that's not answering their question of how does that tie back to my beachhead. Mm -hmm. So if you can't make if you can't connect those dots, they're going to go find someone who can connect those dots. Got it, got it. And you know, vanity metrics are one of the th first things that we kill. People who are optimizing for clicks. Yes. There are people who are optimizing open rates and emails, which are just not good metrics. They're not predictive of the bottom line, but we these, call those output metrics. Output metrics. Because I'm you steal that. You can. It's public. You can find it on our website. So people do activity, like they run some campaigns, and they or they send out emails, or they do uh, social media act activity. They attend events and they track that, and they that's activity effort, right? And then they talk about what that produced. We got this money, this many clicks, this much open rate, this many people came to the booth, this many people registered, attended a webinar, whatever those look like. Those are outputs. The next question becomes, how do I connect those outputs to an outcome? And how are those outcomes related to what the business is trying to achieve? And if you can answer those questions, you're going in the right direction. So one answers the question, did you do any work? The other question answers, did you impact the business? Yes. And that's that's quite a difference. Yes. <laughs> when you get back to the office... I've always seen data as a tool of empowerment, a way to level the playing field, and a way to truly understand those crazy people we call customers. Now, who's in a better position to access this data than the CMO? But apparently, data doesn't change culture on its own. It needs a fertile soil of experimentation to take root. Otherwise, it's just numbers that can be used when they're going up and to the right and discounted if they tell the wrong story. A culture of experimentation can be pushed from the top, from the CMO down. It can also be nurtured from the bottom, from you. It's time for marketers to put the data we have to use. For you, it all starts with your next experiment or research project. It starts the next time you log into analytics and click beyond the dashboard report, deep into the souls of your prospects and customers. Because if not marketing then who will do this? So go science something. 